Hailed by Edwige Standicat as one of our most brilliant writers and storytellers, Miriam Chancy delivers an extraordinary novel that captures the trauma of disaster and the tenacity of the human spirit. One of the most anticipated books for fall, What Storm, What Thunder, is available everywhere books and ebooks are sold. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and today we're listening to a double show. First, we have the writer, Dodie Bellamy, speaking about her new book, Bereaved. And then we have an interview with the filmmaker, Mia Hansen-Love, about her new movie, Bergman Island. So let's get to it. honored to be speaking with the writer Jody Bellamy today. Bellamy is the author of many books and chapbooks of essay, fiction, and experimental prose, including When the Sick Rule the World, Pink Steam, Cunt-Ups, The Barf Manifesto, and the novel The Letters of Mina Harker, which is being re-released in a new edition this month. With her late husband, Kevin Killian, she edited the anthology Writers Who Love Too Much, a compilation of writing from the new narrative movement of which she was an integral part and which she and Killian describe as being fueled by punk, pop, porn, French theory, and social struggle to change writing forever. In 2019, she was the subject of the CCA Wattis Institute for Contemporary Arts On Our Mind program, a year-long series of public events, commissioned essays, and reading group meetings inspired by an artist's writing and life work. She teaches writing and literature at California College of the Arts. She joins us to speak about her latest collection, Bereaved, the book gathers nearly 20 essays Bellamy has written over the last few years with a focus on the state of bereavement, examining not only the loss of her husband, Kevin Killian, but the loss of other artists, physical objects, her own past lives, and radical social movements. As with all of Bellamy's work, the pieces in Bereaved foreground the viscera of the body and other aspects of the physical world, while also engaging with ghosts, fairy tales, the internet, spirituality, and a deep sense of community. Welcome to the show, Dodie. Thank you. That was really nice. Do you have it written <laughs> down? Send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, I will. Uh, so I wanted to start where your book starts, which is just an insanely gorgeous, moving essay about your archive, your and Kevin's archive that you handed over to Yale a few years ago. And in that piece, you write about a certain sadness that comes with materiality and the way physical things can evoke loss. And that's just one way that you treat objects throughout this book. But I I wanted to just start there. Well, I mean, I think it's like the disease of consumerism, right? <laughs> yeah, look, like we're all drowning in, in all this stuff. And of course, like when someone dies and you're left with all their stuff, it's really intense. So there are these relics and trying to be responsible for them and, and kind of the sorting through them. Uh, you know, one of the myths that's constantly comes up in my mind I've written about it is that Eros and Psyche you know where she has to sort through the 
lentils and the beans and the rice and you know this huge pile and that that sense of sorting and what's of value and what isn't and uh i'm sort of thinking a lot about this i'm actually going to be writing more about it like not from a morning standpoint but just from the the whole issue of how everyone's just constantly trying to get rid of their surplus now yeah and but in the essay there's also people who get rid of all their things. It's like a signal that they're going to die or that they're crazy. Yes. So to give away everything is is also frightening. No, I know. Every time I get rid of stuff, it's invariably there's something then that I have to buy again because I've chosen wrong. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. These things tether you to the world, but they're they're like these like relics of the past they're like these weights that pull you down and yeah and how valuable are they i just sort of think about like sometimes what they say like in like in terms of the decluttering is like say you have something that's really precious to you just take a photo of it and then get rid of it and it's like sort of like i think the aura of the object is not over right <laughs> that we live in such a digital reality and and right now it's really intense like supposedly we're leaving this lockdown but there's really no place to go or or as many places to go and so i think there's a real longing and fear of materiality right now at least from in San Francisco, which is maybe a little, my friends in LA just seem to be going out like crazy all the time, but. Uh, <laughs> right. That even the physical world is is threatening at the moment. Yeah. 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 And the flip side, there's kind of this theme in that same essay of hoarding, but not hoarding things necessarily, but kind of hoarding in our bodies, like, through the microbiome, you know, that, that our bodies are made up of so much uh, more than, than just us, than our own DNA or the, the, so you, you use the phrase, the sociobiome that, you know, it's that we don't exist in a vacuum. We exist as a part of a community, you know, in, in everything we do. And so I wonder if you could talk about that, that other aspect of it too. Well, I think an ongoing theme in my writing from the very beginning is like, where do I end and where does the world begin? And and this kind of like fear of boundary invasion and des- desire to be invaded. So this whole like the fact that most of it, the bulk of us are are like microbes and beings that aren't us, like what's us and what isn't us, I think is really kind of terrifying, right? And and the stability of the the self that you know, deep down, we all know it's a lie, but we try to maintain anyway, it becomes really threatened. Yeah, it it seems like, um, you know, in other essays in the book, there's a tension between bodies that are finite and physical, and then, you know, more of these like fantastic bodies, like ghosts or bodies in fairy tales that, you know, that that boundary um, or the idea that, you know, one is tethered to the world and and one is and one might not be. Yeah, I think that, you know, in the 80s, I read all those dopey women's mythology books and I read all the like I didn't read Young, but I read Feminist Jungians. And then like my first novel, Letters to Mina Harker, which they're also reprinting 
is like horror. So I spent all this time studying horror. So I think all that, you know, maybe comes into the work in more subtle ways now, but that it was really formative for me to kind of see the world in this kind of mythic light. There's a great piece here about uh, the artist, Mary Beth Edelson. Yeah. um, Yeah. Her invocation of the goddess. Yeah. And you say like, Oh, for, for letters of Mina Harker, you, um, you, you know, would have copped to like the Freudian influence and other influences, but you would be way too embarrassed to admit that you too had read all these goddess books. And I wonder why, why was that embarrassing? Well, do you know anybody who doesn't think they're dopey? I mean, they're, they're obviously, what's kind of great about them is that they're total fantasy. They're made up. Nobody really knows what these figures are. Like these look like voluptuous pregnant statuettes, you know, that are, are goddesses. Maybe they're just pregnant women. We don't know, right? And so I, yeah, so it's kind of in, embarrassing, but I always like to write about what's embarrassing and, and what's degraded. I, I noticed that Mary Beth Edelson, I, I spent a lot of time reading about other responses to her work. And, and then suddenly she was taken up by the New York Times. They were really excited about her, but it wasn't the goddess work. At the end, she did these like abstractions, you know, like they're still like kind of goddess influence, but they're these abstract figures. And then they could get behind that. You know, they weren't getting behind like the, the, the naked women uh, with that look like, you know, with spirals on them and look like they're raging and crazy which I think is really energetic. So I just went to the the Judy Chicago retrospective and actually I reviewed it at the De Young. And, you know, my favorite parts were these like naked women frolicking in the colored smoke at the end, you know, from the seventies, like those, you know, that, that had this like energy and you couldn't define what it was in, in, like one sentence, right. You just kind of like, you have to take it in on all these registers and, I've always been interested in art and writing that like gets you out of the cerebral and, and has an emotional and even a body engagement. And early writings, I would even talk about porn that way that, you know, that porn, the one thing it does do is make your body engage with the work, right? Do you think the fact that, you know, that the, that the abstract work of hers would be embraced, um, over this more, I don't know if it, you know, I'm not sure what the value is that's off-putting about the goddess work. If it's like this, you know, strong woman or also woman slightly unhinged or one just so removed from like a domestic binary, you know, that that's the thing that wouldn't be attractive about it. What do you think is like the strongest element that the people were repelled by? Well, part of it is simply that it's historical. You don't see any goddess groups now, right? Do you know, because Sheila Brooke has this really great series of photos. She, It's not recent, where she had got one of those Venus of Willendorf statuettes, and then she she took it on traveling with her <laughs> and photographed it in all these, these backgrounds. I just really love that work, you know, because it's kind of a surprising way to, to deal with it. Uh, everything is wrong about the goddess stuff from today's perspective. It's essentialist, you know, it's what it's appropriating. It's, it does everything wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I really like stuff about 
kind of transformative energy. The letters of Mina Harker is really focused a lot on transformation scenes in movies. I really love that. I love going back to Ovid, the metamorphosis. So I really love this kind of concept of trans physical and psychological transformation and, and upheaval. And, uh, you know, part of it's coming from, you know, having had drug flashbacks and panic attacks. So I could relate to that when I was, <laughs> but I still like it and I'm more, much more stable now, you know? Yeah. In terms of the essay as a form, um, because something, especially in that first piece, um, you know, where you start to where you get to, I was yeah. just blown away. I didn't, I wasn't able to trace how we arrived at the ending, which is, you know, having to do with language and objects and again, and um, so I, I, and I read that you write, you know, that the essay form to you is the closest, you know, to poetry yeah. one can get without writing it. So the, the form itself seems like you can transform what something is about or just the piece itself within the piece. Um, yeah, it's a very intuitive process and it's kind of just gathering and collaging. And it's it's interesting that, you know, the essay is something that always terrified me. Like I remember, you know, just, you know, I always did okay on it, but like if I had an essay due in college, I would spend two weeks in terror. And, and when I have to write, even now, if I have to write something straightforward, like for a magazine, I'm in terror, you know, because this, this being forced to be linear. But I have a pretty linear mind, you know. So it's, it's interesting that I ended up writing essays as a creative force. Part of that was being a young, when I was uh, in the new narrative group, in San Francisco and just kind of the poetic scene, you were expected to write about uh, your friend's work and everybody had magazines that had to be filled. So I was just like, I wrote this like long, I wrote on Gene Dealman, that movie, Chantel Ackerman. And I wrote this like long piece on Dennis Cooper. <laughs> but these are, were, so I'm trying to, to make that for my own, it's been an ongoing project. But yeah, I, I basically just have a theme and then I just start gathering material and taking notes and writing and, and then looking at it. And, you know, if the piece works, I'm in control of it for sure, but it takes me places that surprise me too. So yeah, that, that one, that one, your first one that you're talking about, it's really, it's sort of like, it goes pretty far. One more step, the whole piece would be unhinged. <laughs> and when I sent it to Donatea and the editor, I had he wanted me to tell him what it was about. Like he couldn't immediately tell what the and it is. I guess that's how it connects to poetry too, because like at least my understanding of poetry from living with poets forever is that, you know the the way some of them talk about the poem, the poem is an experience, right? It's not like you read it and this is the meaning, you know, if it's a good poem, just the act of going through the poem is the experience. It, like you're, it puts you in that, in the moment engagement with the language. And uh, so I think the essay, I like to, to kind of use that as a model, right? It, it's like a journey you go through. And then afterwards it's like, what happened, you know? 
Yeah, that seems true to me. And it, it also seems I was listening to writers yesterday talk about the novel and that the novel can kind of be the raison d'etre for, for everything in your life and that it, it can just, it absorbs everything. And it seems to me, you know, um, just as much could be said of, of the essay. For instance, this there's an amazing piece in here called Cinderella Syndrome. Yeah, that was fun to write. <laughs> Which talks about Cinderella, the glass slipper, your first husband, and just, and, and, you know, the original fairy tale. It just moves all over the place. And I did think in that case that, that this object, that the slipper and many kind of iterations of it seemed really useful. Yeah. Obsessive Googling of things. Yes. It's useful. Maybe you could, you know, talk about just again to return to, to objects. So in that piece, it's like the slipper is kind of the thing that allows you to transfer between all these different memories, even forms, because there's some memoir, some analysis. Reading this collection, I think back to other writing I read of yours where objects and kind of like using their proper names and even talking about buying things, like seems like this consumerist critique in this really subtle way or kind of tongue-in-cheek but then other times it's like they're talismans and they're these things, you know, that can give you power. Or just maybe you could just again to get back to just the importance of the physical things in your work. Yeah, I think though so in this, I just want to go back to the Cinderella syndrome. It's important to like remember that that was a catalog essay for an Ellen Cantor show and the piece I was writing about is a series called the Cinderella Syndrome. So the spirit of that piece is very much what I was seeing from Ellen Cantor. And a lot of the images are taken from her, you know, so it's very much like being often these essays are being shaped by something that's kind of almost off stage mm -hmm. as a response to, but I don't know. It's just this ongoing. I, I don't know what to say about objects. You know, <laughs> I, really, I mean, I just feel really burdened right now because I'm trying to get rid of like half of the stuff that I own. And mm -hmm. and I don't seem to really want anything much anymore. You know, I, I bought like a, a bougie new knife for the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And now, <laughs> please, see, but I, you know what I'm saying? I, I just don't seem to even my books, you know, but then, of course, I just ordered a book that I got rid of, you know, there is no choosing. And, and then there's like, I have to do like kind of finish up Kevin's archives now, right? It's, it's over. There's just X amount of stuff of his and that's very sad and intimidating. I was, uh, I, I went to the museum this weekend and I remembered don't take a backpack to an art museum. So I, I was like filling up, a purse to take. And so I was looking for a little notebook to put in the purse. So just in case, right. And I, so I found the shelf that had like kind of stuff that had been, had some writing in it and everyone I would pick up, there would be rough drafts for poems by Kevin. And it was like, you know, like it was this kind of slap in the face and, and also really intriguing. So I just don't know what's here. I don't know what's going to pop up out at me, you know, and it's just now, you know, like that I feel at all like pretty much a normal human being. I mean, 
grief, <laughs> grief is a bitch, you know, and it takes a long time to, uh, and then with the COVID in the middle of it, uh, it takes a while, right? There's a piece in here that you and Kevin wrote together very shortly before he died. And I was wondering, you know, months or like they started it, uh, like a month and a half before his death. Um, yeah. A collaborative piece just of writing together and um, writing about different themes each week. And I wondered, you know, how that, how you both got the idea for that and what was that process like? It seems. Well, the reason that we were doing that is that we were trying to do anything like we knew he was dying. It was so messed up. He had like the worst doctors on earth. I mean, it was obvious he was going to die, but he should have been around longer than he was if he wasn't treated so badly at Kaiser. So, and I was very much trying to think of anything to suggest a future. And collaborating has was really an issue for us. We couldn't collaborate. Like he collaborated with everybody, but we would always just get in fights and stuff. So it was interesting the last year or last couple of years of his life, we kept being asked to write collaborative essays. Like whoever is asked to write a collaborative essay. So anyway, I came up with the idea of doing this this weekly dialogue because we'd already done some dialogues together and, and we had a good time. And he was really like against it. Like he just wanted, didn't want to listen. He didn't want to do it. And I just, I kept at him. And so finally he agreed. So it was supposed to be a project that would last a year. So that like kind of, again, is suggesting a future. And once we started doing it, he wouldn't stop. He was so into it. And it's interesting, we were in the hospital. Again, he's in the ICU, right? And no matter what oxygen they gave him, it wasn't working. And so they were going to intubate him. And of course, they do not tell us what that means. I was really pissed when I found out like what that meant. They did not tell us this. And so that's what we did in the hospital as we're waiting for them to come intubate him we worked on the final week and he was like and somebody came in and interrupted him and he was like really upset like he really wanted to get this down he really wanted so it really became sort of like his it not sort of it became his last words and he really it became increasingly meaningful to him so and it was fun for us too you know, no matter how long you're with somebody, if you do something like collaborate with them, you kind of have a different relationship than your your normal relationship. Of course. And you guys, I mean, maybe you didn't write together, but it seems like your relationship was, you know, very creatively collaborative and that you shared work and... Oh, no, totally. He was my first reader for everything. That was really hard to lose my first reader. There are pieces here um, that address just, you know, what it's been like to lose Kevin and and not so much in that classic, like year of magical thinking, Joan Didion style arch grief, but, uh, but also, you know, really about this thing of having a public figure in your life who's mourned and the way that can kind of obviate your own grief in a sense. Yeah, I spent a lot of time talking to people 
who had lost someone who had some kind of public presence. And everybody goes through the same experience and basically feeling like this is a private experience for yourself that's somehow being stolen from you or corrupted. And and there's a struggle to maintain the privacy of it, right? But then at the same time, the fact that so many people mourned Kevin and that we, we had this memorial at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and they, they had to turn people away, even with a breakout room. And so that's like really beautiful. But at the time, it was just like, go away, go away, you know, and, and now I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. Is there something about, you know, the, the role of the widow and having to be the public face in a sense of this morning that that there is a certain uh, expectation. What has that been like for you? Well, I pretty much refused it uh, at first. You know, I just had people come take care of me. And, uh, you know, Andrew Durbin took up a lot of the slack as editor of Freeze, but he's also like an old friend of ours and very close to Kevin. So Andrew would be the public face. And then like David Book, a poet and fiction, I don't know, prose writer that lives in Oakland. He also took up the slack. Like they're kind of like our co-literary executors. So they really helped because I just couldn't, I'm totally fine dealing with this stuff now, but I, I just couldn't do it. So I, I, I didn't really want to take the public face of the widow. I just wanted to go in a cave and be by myself. I, I would read articles about widow's weeds and it's really made sense to me. Like I just wanted a fucking sorry, black veil over my head, you know, and to just hide out. And in some ways, COVID kind of gave me that. And I felt that COVID really, well, allowed me to finish the book, right? I wrote during it, but I thought that COVID was really a way for me to really have my widow's weeds and just really be by myself, even though it wouldn't have been something I chose. But my therapist seems to think that, no, it just like kept me from doing the grieving that I needed to do. So I don't, we have different opinions about that. I don't know what's right. So. And how has it been to write about, you know, the final essays in this book are very recent, just you know, from last spring. It seems like you've, you've written about some of these things uh, right after they happened. You know, that's the beauty of publishing with a smaller press, right? It's, it was like, galleys were going to happen and I got the piece in like that the the final piece in the book went to got laid out and into the book like almost instantly so uh and I'm really glad that we you know it worked out that I was able to write a final piece just for the book to pull it all together I don't know I kept thinking about you know obviously I would never read that Joan Didion your magical thinking book when Kevin was alive. Like it would just be too scary and tender. So of course, after he died, it was like the only thing that was interesting to me for a while because it was like talking about an an experience that I could somewhat relate to. I mean, obviously our lives are very different. So she said that she couldn't write anything for a year. So I was writing about Kevin's death within a, a few weeks of it for because I I the first bereaved piece was was written then and so it was very interesting to have this piece that was written 
while I was really crazed, right? Mm -hmm. I, I that, that person I don't even hardly have access to, to kind of allow that voice to come in. Do you think that's um, having this character whose name in the pieces be reaved and having it in third person, was that helpful at all? As oh, as totally, to totally. I just, yeah, it was a, a way of mediating the, the grief. I couldn't, you know, that like there are three, I guess you would call it the bereaved trilogy. That sounds so important. But, you know, it's not until the third piece that the first person comes in. It's a, the first two pieces are third person. And, you know, they get increasingly intimate and engaged with the material, you know, as the process goes on. You and Kevin were part of this amazing community of writers in San Francisco and then, you know, throughout the world with the new narrative movement. And um, many of those people who, you know, died of AIDS and died young. And it's and like one Sam D'Alessandro who's a writer I love so much, who I would have never known about unless it was for you and Kevin. So you did that work of carrying on Sam's legacy, other other writers' legacies. Yeah, Steve Abbott. Steve Abbott. It seems very sad, but at the same time, uh, something that, that, that could keep one engaged and excited when it's not just about, you know, when you carry not your just your own legacy, but others as well. And, and not that Kevin necessarily needs that, but I wonder if having that sense of him and wanting to continue his work gives you any solace. I don't know if it gives me solace, but I really feel its importance. Like, you know, it, people don't just die and then go into like literary history. People have to lobby for them and people have to work for them and people have to keep their memory alive, even somebody who is uh, important at the time. I remember, you know, I'm close friends with Matthias Wegener, who's Kathy Acker's executor. And for a while there, it was like, is Kathy going to be totally forgotten or not? I mean, it was kind of touch and go for a while. And then like the trend or whatever that changed and Kathy got embraced and she's doing really fine now, but that, that heritage has to be held. And, you know, I have to do things like I keep make a will is really important, you know, otherwise our stuff get thrown in a dumpster and, and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm really happy that people still care about him. And uh, I think in a year or so, there was maybe a conference in Los Angeles about Kevin. So that's be really nice, right? Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Dodie, so much for, for talking with us today. And congratulations on the book. It's really it's so beautiful. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dodie Bellamy. Her new book is called Bereaved. listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Jodi Bellamy about her new book, Bereaved. We now turn to our conversation with Mia Hansen-Love about the film Bergman Island. I'm excited to be speaking with the filmmaker Mia Hansen-Love today. Her many films in French include Things to Come, Eden, and Father of My Children. 
She joins me to speak about her latest movie, Bergman Island, which follows a filmmaking couple during their residency on Faro, the island in Sweden where Ingmar Bergman lived and shot many of his films. As the couple, Chris and Tony, work on their screenplays and tour the sites that inspired the great filmmaker, the line between real life and fiction becomes ever more ambiguous. Welcome to the show, Mia, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much. So tell me, Mia, where you got the idea for Bergman Island. When did you start writing it? And did you also do the residency on Faro that your characters do? I think the idea of the film was me very long ago while I was doing other films, even my first films. I think I already had this idea within me to make a film one day about a couple of directors that would be some kind of double portrait of them, but also that would be a film about inspiration and about the writing process. So that idea I had during several years with me, I carried it, but I just didn't know which form it would take until one day when I started to think of Foro as being a place maybe where I could set the story, where this couple could go and write a film and then when I started having this idea of, of a film that the whole film would take place on Foro, that's, I think, when really fiction really started for me. I mean, the machine of fiction really started to move when the idea of Foro came up. Foro has been in my mind forever since I started making films because, as it is the case for many directors, because of Bergman, of course, and because it's you don't have that many places that are so much related to a director like Fora is to Bergman. So it was in my mind somewhere. I had been a great admirer of the films of Bergman and the locations do play an important part in my films too. They are locations are very crucial in my films. They are not just sets, it's more than that. So I guess I'm very sensitive to that question of the relationship you have to a place as a director. But then I think it's when Bergman died and or actually a couple of years after his death, I've heard, I started to hear about the Bergman estate, you know, the fact that you could go to the houses and stay there and write. And then I also met some people who had been there, who came back and told me about their experience on the island. And they told me also about the Bergman Week and the Bergman Safari. And I think that's when really the whole process started. And then I went there and I wrote the film on the island. But when I went there the first time, I already had this project of writing a film set on the island. How did you want to approach Bergman's legacy in the film? Because there's this reverence for him and these people, you know, on the bus going to see every single location. And then there's also you know, a bit of poking holes in this idea of someone who is such a larger-than-life figure in European film and all film in general, and then someone maybe who lived more in his work than in his life, who was able, you know, not to um, have certain day-to-day obligations that regular people have. That's the question for me. You said, uh, I mean, the one thing that is really the question that is, how can you... When you are an artist and uh, you have a vocation and all your life is about that quest you have, how can you find the right balance between that and everyday life? And sometimes it feels like cinema is more life than life, actually. It feels closer to who you are and to what life is about. I guess that's how you feel when you 
when you become a director and you feel it's your vocation, it, it has to do with that. I mean, it's because you, you have the feeling that you're being more yourself when you are on a set or that you get closer to what life really is or should be. And you can say maybe it's an illusion, but maybe there is something about it that is true, you know. And anyway, it's difficult to find a balance between the intensity of making films and of this vocation and what it means and what you give to it and the necessity of making a living, you know. And Bergman certainly find, well, Bergman has his own way of doing it, but that can work only for Bergman. I don't think uh, it can work for a lot of other directors. He created his own world and he was extremely powerful as a creator. He could write nonstop. He would write a script after another. And at the same time, he could have many love affairs and many women and kids. And, and he would do everything, but he wasn't praising his kids. It was, you know, his priority was obviously his work and his writing. And and he managed to do that and it's good for him. But I know I cannot do that. And even if I could, I wouldn't want to do it. So the question for me is, how do I do my own work? I do think writing and cinema and my own quest is as important to me than Bergman's quest was to him. But just I, I have to find my own way to express myself and to deal with that. But it's going to be another balance in my life because I cannot give all the space to the cinema. I cannot. I cannot practically. I cannot spiritually. I mean, I I don't know if it's because of my personality or if it is because I'm a woman, but it's going to be different, you know? And I think my film deals with that. My film is a dialogue about that, you know, what it is to be a woman and an artist and how you cope, how you can find a balance between the absolute involvements you can have in your art on the one hand and on the other hand, you know, human relationships and the importance they also have in your life. Yeah. And something I noticed in the film is that it seems to explore this division that we have between art and life or between reality and fiction. If we imagine that those are always so separate and here they're much more interspersed in kind of a in a rhythm, you know, that the character Chris is writing her screenplay, she struggles to write, and then suddenly she starts to imagine the story, and that is just completely filtered into her daily life. Or even people going to see the Bergman locations, you know, as opposed to they're not visiting the island, they're visiting more this fiction and seeing it, wanting to see that like as from a film. So I wondered if you were thinking about that as you were writing the way that story is not so separate from maybe our day-to-day -day life. Yes, I wanted to show how mixed, uh, how intertwined things are, you know, at least for me. I mean, for me, it's not two separate things, life on the one hand and the fiction on the other hand. I really take my inspiration from my everyday life. And in my fiction, my fiction leads me back to my life, but they are in a constant movement and dialogue and to a point that uh, I sometimes even feel a confusion. Sometimes I don't know where exactly I am, what really happened, what I imagine, what, you know, quite often people ask me about my films, what I invented, what is autobiographical, what really is like 
inspired from my actual life and what is and honestly sometimes I don't even know anymore because I live in a world where cinema takes so much space in my life and uh, when I say cinema I mean inventing stories writing them because I write my own films so it's so much present in my everyday life on the one end and on the other end in the films I write my everyday life it's so much there so it's, it's both ways you know but to a degree that at some point I don't I get confused myself. I remember when I was doing my second feature, Father of My Children, which was a film inspired by a film producer who I had known and he had committed suicide. And I made that film that was a film directly inspired by what happened with him. And making this film was a way of re-experimenting what I had been through with him. And I remember after making the film, I didn't know anymore what was like things I had really lived with him and things that I invented I got to a certain point where you know it's really got blurred and I think that's really what I tried to do with this film was to capture that confusion that I find actually very stimulating and strange and uh, complex but I wanted that's the confusion itself that I wanted to try to capture with that film and how do you feel about people reading the film so much through your autobiography? Reading the film as, you know, a reference maybe to yourself and your ex-partner and feeling like that's almost an element of how the film is watched through your own story. I think that's mostly the journalist who you really know my background and the facts, some facts of my life. But I think most of the people among the public don't know anything about that. And uh, so I think it's, it could take a lot of space in some reviews, but actually when it's about the public and how people would see it, I don't think it would really be so much present. And anyway, I actually, I don't, I don't read the reviews. Maybe it's partly because of that, but I, I always, since I started making films, I try to learn how to not read reviews and critics on your films because I find it more sane to not uh, read what people write about you, whether it's good or bad, because it hurts you in one way or another, even if it's good. <laughs> I mean, just it's uh, strange, I think, to read, especially when you make such personal films like the way I do, because if I read comments on my film, it feels like it's comment about me, actually. So I really don't read them. And I guess it protects me. And I I really try to focus on my films and what I'm trying to do. And I don't look at myself doing it. I try to not have any distance and I, I don't look back at it. And I'm not aware of how people look at it. I know I can talk about it, but I, I don't look at my film objectively. So that probably, yes, protects me from being too much aware of how people uh, look at them and how they would compare to my actual life and stuff like that. I wanted to ask you as my last question about time in your work. Something I love so much about your films is a really robust sense of time. In Things to Come, for instance, I think I remember a shot of a clock or a calendar. In Father of My Children, there was such a strong sense of the before and after a tragedy. And in this movie, Chris at one point takes a clock off the wall and she stops time. So I, I wondered if you have a different kind of time signature for each film that you make or how if that's a very important element to you or if you were thinking about time in relation yeah. to Bergman Island yes thank you for mentioning that yes I think time is so important in my film somehow it was always in the heart of my film each of my films deals with time I think and each of my films deals with time in a different way some of my films 
deal with, with the passing of time, but it's like we're talking about 10 years and it's about some of my film are about what I tell and what I don't tell and parts of life that are kept in the darkness that I don't tell about. And it's these films where you have like big ellipses and uh, holes, literally like my first feature, for instance. And some other films are much more fluid and they, but all of them in one way or another deal with passing of time, which has always been one of my big obsessions, I think. And I like that you mentioned that scene in my film because I, it's a scene that I, uh, that means a lot to me, actually. It's a very small moment, but just that moment where she takes the battery of the clock. I think that refers for me also to the fact that, you know, in all of Bergman's films, you always have clocks. In most of them, you always have Bergman, who I guess was also obsessed with time, but in his own way, he would always film clocks and the tic-tacs, you know, let us, he would always show us and let us hear the tic-tacs, tic-tic, you know, I don't know how you call that in English, I'm sorry, but you know what I mean, this sound that clocks do, and especially like the old clocks, uh, he was also saying a lot that in all of his film, he would put the sound of the clock of his grandmother, for instance. So it's he was obsessed with the sounds of clock and and I guess it was because it symbolized, you know, also it was about passing of time and passing of time brings us to the fear of death or something, you know, and that, I think that was very much present in this film. And what I enjoyed about that scene is that to me, when she does that, it's also because she wants to get rid of, the, of Bergman. To me, that clock is really symbolizing Bergman's presence in the room through that clock ticking. It's really about Bergman, you know, being behind her shoulder and watching her as she struggles writing. And that's part of why she can't get into it. She feels like that pressure. That's why she needs to take the battery off the clock to get, you know, to feel free. And I, I felt so much empathy for her at this moment. And I really enjoyed filming her taking it was really like liberating actually for me to film that uh, that girl taking out the battery it was like getting rid of time literally and of Bergman maybe at the same time (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much Mia for speaking with us today thank you very much we've been speaking with Mia Hanson Love about her new film Bergman Island thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Vladen.